Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Before we get started with this week's episode, I wanted to jump in with a quick update on The Good Newspaper. As you already know, we are creating a physical printed newspaper full of good news. Not cheesy news, but really authentic, meaningful, hopeful news that dives deep into the problems of the world and focuses on the people who are making a difference, that focuses on the helpers. Over the last 30 days, we've been running a Kickstarter to raise the funds for the campaign, but also for people to pre-order and be a part of this from the very beginning. And it has been unreal. And the last seven days have been especially crazy. We were featured in the Huffington Post. Now this news created a video on us that it has more than 500,000 views on it right now. Half a million people have heard the story of the good newspaper. We've got more than a thousand people who have backed the campaign. We were featured by Kickstarter. Like everything is coming together. It's unreal. And I'm so enthusiastic because this, this originated with this beautiful, hopeful community who believes in focusing on the people and the ideas and the movements that are changing the world. And I cannot be more excited to see this blowing up and coming to life. With all that said, the Kickstarter ends in, you know, at the time you're listening to this, we have just more than 48 hours left. And so if you want to be a part of this from the very beginning, if you, if you don't want to miss the Kickstarter window, then go subscribe right now. The website is goodnewspaper.co. That'll automatically take you to the Kickstarter page and you can subscribe right there. We've got all kinds of goodies. We're running out of them, but we haven't sold out of anything yet. So go jump on it quick before everything is gone. And oh my gosh, I just can't wait to get this in your hands. Like more than anything, I'm so excited for you guys, the people who care about making a difference in the world and actually are changing the world to be able to have this tool in your hands. We know it's going to be really meaningful and amazing, and we are so excited. So thank you for your support. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you for helping to bring this to life. Wow. I can't believe that we've done this. I can't believe that we're on the other side of this. Goodnewspaper.co. This is your last chance to subscribe. Thank you. Hello, hello, Brandon Harvey here with this week's episode of Sounds Good. This is the podcast where every single week we have meaningful conversations with world changers who are living hopeful and inspiring lives, doing things that matter. And this week we are talking with somebody that, oh my gosh, I think she's so amazing. Her name is Liz Bohannon. Um, Amazing is one way to describe her, creative, super genius, all these things, um, I also would like to describe her as crazy because, oh my goodness, she has gone out on so many limbs to do so many ridiculous, amazing things. And and I love that about her. Honestly, I left this conversation thinking that we were best friends and, and I think we are. So uh, Liz, if you're listening right now, uh, I'm going to send you a BFF bracelet. But oh my gosh. So Liz started this amazing company called Seiko Designs and they're a fashion brand based in Uganda. Like they're not they're not in LA, they're not in New York. They're in Uganda. 
and they sell beautiful handbags and accessories and these crazy unique sandals and it creates opportunity and community for women around the world. It's super cool, it's amazing, but in the process of creating Seiko, Liz went through some crazy stuff. She sold everything she owned. Her and her husband quit their jobs and they they hopped in a car and drove around the country and they ate a whole bunch of peanut butter. Like the whole story's unreal. I'm really inspired by Liz and the story and the impact that they're making, but I'm also inspired by the intentionality in which she lives her life. A lot of our conversation today, we we talked about feminism and gender equality and, and what those things mean in uh, the day that we live in today. And so I just loved getting to have this conversation. I love that uh, we kind of dove into some things that are more nuanced and, and there's a little bit more detail than often is paid attention to. And and I think that you're going to like the episode. I think you're going to like Liz a lot. I think that you're going to find yourself smiling a lot like I did. And so with that in mind, let's just jump straight into Smile City. Uh, this is Liz Bohannon of Seiko Designs. Here we go. All right, so Liz, you and I were just talking before we hit the record button, and we have a ton of mutual friends, which is hilarious and random. So many mutual friends. We have a Portland love fest friend happening situation. And wait, what what year did you move to Portland again? My husband and I moved to Portland in early 2011. Oh, that's what year I moved to Portland. Oh, no way. That's awesome. There you go. And so it continues. Yeah. So we moved to Portland after um, traveling. We both grew up in Missouri and then spent about a year living out of our car, which of course, you know, is um, the high moment of any one story and traveling the entire United States. And one of the cities that we stopped in was Portland and we completely fell in love with it. As you should. And after the end of our big trip, we were like, let's go back and hang out in Portland for a little bit longer. That's and hanging brilliant. out in Portland ended up being, let's, found our company there and started our family there. And now here we are, man. Okay. Wait. So tell me about like living in a car for an entire year. How long had (laughs) you and your husband been married at that point? Oh, well, um, so we got married. He proposed about four days after I moved back from Uganda. (laughs) We got married about four months later. So I was in the midst of, um, planning a wedding, trying to launch Seiko, finishing my master's degree, like writing my dissertation. And uh, Ben was working full time. And so we did that. We were kind of in that life situation for about a year. And then Ben quit his full-time job to join Seiko full time. And that's when people decided that we were actually certifiably crazy. So Ben quit his full-time job, which was of course the only income that we were living off of at the time because I wasn't making any money at Seiko. And so he quit his full-time job. We sold almost everything that we owned, including our wedding presents that we had just gotten like less than a year before. And we bought a Honda Element. I don't know if you're familiar with Honda Elements, but if you've ever seen uh, a toaster flying down the highway, there's a good chance that was a Honda Element. And we decided that we were going to spend a year traveling around the U.S., sharing the Seiko story, finding retail partners, launching the brand, hosting trunk shows, the whole nine yards. And yeah, that was that was that year of life. Man. It was a crazy season. That's so crazy. Yeah, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I will insert a spoiler <laughs> alert that uh, the Seiko worked out and it seems like that year <laughs> away wasn't as crazy as it seemed. Um, okay, but 
Tell me about the nitty gritty of living a life without a home in a Honda Element. Like, what was the best thing about it, and what was the worst thing? Because I've lived, I've lived small stretches of my life with no home. In fact, I was one time I went to Uganda and I came back from Uganda and I didn't have a home. And wow, it sounds like we were on very parallel tracks. Yeah, it's actually <laughs> it's almost creepy the, the more I think about it, but. But it's it's weird and it's interesting, but it's also, you know, we're we're both doing it by choice. And so there's a thrill and there's an excitement Definitely. to it. But what was it like so for you? So different. And I want to be very, um, very cautious that when I say, you know, we were homeless, which te- technically we were, obviously it's an incredibly different situation that at any given time we come from backgrounds and have a level of privilege that, you know, I've never a day in my life been worried that I would actually have to sleep on the street or not have the resources that I needed to take care of myself. So that being said, yes, it's not to say it isn't still hard and that there aren't challenges, but it's a very different situation. I like Um, to call it houseless instead of homeless because it's like, it's enough of a difference that people, you think about it for a second longer and then it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I didn't have a house. Yeah, definitely. I love that because I do think that there's, there's an important distinction and I don't want to, uh, glorify or, um, you know, nostalgize poverty at the end of the day. But that being said, the nitty gritty, okay, best situation or best part of that trip was my husband and I had a rule when we started the trip, night one of the trip, we said, okay, the whole time we're on this trip, we have a never say no rule. And that means that unless it goes against one, our like moral code, where we're just like, we can't do that. That doesn't align with the way that we view the world or it actually we think is putting us into like significant bodily harm danger (laughs) (laughs) then we're just going to say yes we want to have this posture of just being open and saying like this year is about exploring and it's about meeting new people and it's about learning stories and being a part of great stories and just just proclaiming that in the beginning of the trip and just saying, hey, this is the rule. The default answer to every invitation that we receive in the next year while we're on the road is just going to be yes. And that was such a beautiful experience. It, it just changes to, to go from a place where you're like, should I do that? Is it worth my time? Is it, are, are these, is it going to be an awkward situation? Do I really belong there? Is this going to be fruitful? And just saying like, oh, somebody invited us to be a part of something our default answer is yes, led us to incredible experiences, friendships, relationships that still to this day exist. I can think about some invitations, some answers and, and yeses to those invitations that led to friendships that, you know, today were the godparents of one of these couples, uh, second daughters. <laughs> and so just like really beautiful relationships and friendships. So that was by far the best part of it was just having that kind of sense of openness and like our job is to follow the rabbit trails and to say yes and to meet people and to have these experiences was really, really incredible. Um, That's so cool. Worst part. Oh gosh. There's a lot of just logistics that are hard. You know, we ate so much peanut butter. Um, And as much as, you know, I'm saying like, well, we weren't really living in poverty at the end of the day, neither of us had an income. We were living off of our savings. We were investing any money that we did have into this company and trying to get it off the ground. Seiko at the time was completely unbankable. We couldn't even get, you know, like a small business loan um, or a line of credit for that matter at that point. So we really, we had a budget of about 
couple hundred dollars a month that we were trying to live off of. And that included gas and food. So it was like very, uh, very intense. We ate so much peanut butter. We ended up, we just kept like a giant kind of Sam's club thing of peanut butter in our car. And we, ca- we called it high calorie power paste. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, if we couldn't have a meal that day, we would just be like, it's fine. We have peanut butter. So we ate a lot of peanut butter. Um, the personal hygiene situation while you're living out of your car is definitely just, um, it's pretty arduous, right? There were times where it was like, we would finally nail a meeting with a retail partner that we wanted to sell into, or we were going to host a trunk show. And we had to think about like, okay, we're kind of stinky. Like we haven't, you know, we haven't showered in a few days. And so things like having to like Google and find like a national park or like a, a truck stop for that matter that has coin operated showers and figuring that out. And I remember we didn't even, I didn't even have a, a blow dryer on, on the trip. We tried to pack really light because the entire Honda element was filled with inventory and stocks. And so I remember one time showering in a truck stop and then my hair was like sopping wet and we were like coming into the city, I think to host a trunk show. And so literally when we were like on the highway having been drive so I could like stick my head out the window so I could <laughs> kind of get my hair a little bit dry before a trunk show. So, you know, you spend a lot of energy on things like that, on, um, you know, meals, preparation and hygiene and, you know, el- electricity, finding a place where we could like charge our computers and get Wi-Fi. A lot of like energy on the logistics that when you're in a home or you have an office or you have access to a shower, you don't really think about how easy those things are. So um, that was definitely a learning experience. We'll, we'll say that about it. Man. Okay. So wait, let's. Let's back up a tiny bit and talk about how you became passionate enough about anything <laughs> to, to do that. Um, so we've alluded to you started a company named Seiko. Where did the passion for this first start? Like as far back as you can remember. Yeah. Oh, as far back as I can remember. I usually start in university, but I could probably back it up even further than that. Probably two things were happening actually in my life that kind of led me to this conclusion that are not related but ended up being related. One, I am lucky enough, my mother is one of the most incredible human beings on the planet. She is like an angel. I mean, she her she's a full-time pediatric nurse and her just like heart and level of compassion and empathy for children is out of this out of this world. And so growing up, she worked at a big hospital in kind of the inner city of where we lived. And she had kids from all over the state. She was a transplant and dialysis nurse. And so she had kids from all over the state that were coming from all different um, backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, kind of family situations that were in need of dialysis. And she would form these really meaningful relationships with these kids. And a lot of these kids, specifically the kids that came from really difficult backgrounds, she kind of um, just really became an important figure in their life. And they kind of became adopted siblings for us, not legally, um, but just, you know, on the weekends, sometimes they would come and they would, you know, stay sometimes for weeks with us. Sometimes they would come on family trips with us whenever we would do something fun and we were like, you know, as a family going to get to go to Six Flags, you know, the most epic thing that you can do as an eight year old. Um, typically there would be a couple kids from the hospital that would come along with us. So my mom, I think from a really early age, um, did an amazing job and not in a way that was like born 
born out of like guilt or pounding it, you know, over the head, but really just, it became very clear to me of like, oh, my experience as a white privileged kid growing up in like upper middle class suburbia, that's not the world. That's not how that it's real. And it's a part of the world and I am real and I, you know, live in a real part of the world. But the reality is the world is a lot bigger than my experience as, you know, a little girl in West County, St. Louis. And even just 20 minutes away, here's what life looks like for a kid growing up on the other side of the river. And I, I really believe that that kind of fundamental from a really early age of just like it, it set, I think, in my heart, in my mind, a belief that the world is infinitely bigger than I than I know and kind of a sense of wanting to one acknowledge that and two explore that I think more than anything it really created just a genuine sense of like curiosity about the world and about other people and I think I think looking back on it also a, a good understanding of my place in the world and I think from a very early age I realized how incredibly privileged I was and the access to resources that I had that kids in my same city living 20 minutes away could never even dream of. That's huge. What a cool thing to kind of realize at an early age, even on a small level, and then to get to carry that forward with you before you go to university. Definitely. I'm so grateful to my mom. I remember, you know, and it's fun to look back and see I remember being about nine years old and there was a little girl that would come home with us quite often. Her name was Maria and Maria came from a, a really, really tough background in kind of the inner city of St. Louis and she was adorable, but man, this girl snored like a bear, just like, I mean, she snored so loud and when Maria would come stay at our house, she would sleep in my room. And I remember one night just being like, Maria had woken me up again and she was sleeping in my room. And I remember as a nine-year-old just feeling so angry, kind of this sense of like, Maria isn't, this is my room and I deserve a good night's sleep. And my mom is ruining my life by making this girl, you know, sleep in my room. And I remember marching down to my mom's room and waking her up and, you know, like telling her the injustice that I couldn't get a good night's sleep because Maria was waking me up with her snoring. Mind you, you know, Maria's a dialysis patient. She's, she spends four days a week hooked up to a machine at the hospital for eight hours a day, comes from a really terrible family background, but yet I was clearly the victim in this situation. And I remember my mom like waking up and kind of nodding her head and hearing me out. And I'm thinking like, oh, she gets it. She gets how (laughs) bad the situation is for me. And then she walked down the hallway and she opened up the linen closet and she handed me a pillow and a blanket. And I was like, Oh, good. Okay, we're gonna go. Maria's gonna get moved out of my room. And she just handed me the pillow and blanket. And she's like, there are three other couches in this house. And you're more than welcome to sleep anywhere in this home that you would like. (laughs) So good. And I remember as a nine year old, just being like, you know, when you can just have those visceral memories of just like, these emotions of this like fire in my belly at at how much I had been wronged. But I think it was, my mother was so consistent with, I think in these like subtle, but not so subtle and consistent ways, making sure we kind of knew our place in the world. (laughs) And I'm incredibly grateful for that. So that was happening in like grade school. And then another interesting thing that was happening that probably didn't really start emerging more until middle school would be kind of my awareness of gender dynamics. Um, I have a very clear memory of 
being in seventh grade and I went to a school that had this thing called Spirit Week and Spirit Week was a huge deal at our school. And the two biggest events of Spirit Week were lip sync and boys palms and lip sync. I was um, from a from seventh grade, which is when the school starts. I had kind of deemed myself. I was like, are you kidding me? This is my dream world. Like all of your friends getting together and dressing up in costumes and like lip syncing and putting, you know, choreographing a dance and then performing it in front of thousands of people. Thank you. I've died and gone to seventh grade Liz heaven. This is awesome. So, you know, I, of course, was like, we're going to be the best lip sync that the seventh grade has ever seen. I held tryouts. I choreographed this dance. We were really, really raising the bar. And I remember running a practice one night and we would have these practices, even as seventh graders. It was crazy. My school was very into this from like, you know, seven to nine o'clock on a Tuesday night or something. And I remember being in the gym and like, I was, you know, telling everybody where they should go and directing people. And this kid that was a part of lip sync kind of being off to the side. And I remember him calling me a feminazi. And I remember Whoa. being like, what? Like, I didn't even know what that was. I, I literally had like no concept, but I knew, you knew it, was bad. it was really degrading. I knew it was super degrading and super bad. And he was not saying that in a favorable light. And I knew it, it was associated in some way with here I was in front of 30 of my peers kind of direct them in this project and and that his kind of derogatory comment was a direct result of this like role that I happened to be playing in that moment and it was actually a, a nickname that ended up kind of catching on he was like this kind of like bully you know like football player that thought he was pretty cool and so and he just kept calling me that and there were other guys in our class that would kind of um that, that picked up on it so I was 12 years old the first time I I was called a feminazi and I actually was um I was on Instagram today and this was maybe this is why this story feels so top of mind and this woman had a shirt that said I think it said feminism and then it said something about feminazi because because hoping for equal rights for your gender is the equivalent of it of invading Poland oh, or something no. like that. And I, and I, wow. and I laughed pretty hard because it is, it was like, I just, I just knew that there was this intensity and that this was something that I shouldn't do as, as a, as a girl, as a woman, it wasn't something that was like gaining me favor with the boys in our class. Now I feel really grateful that even as like, you know, a 12 or 13 year old, I was like, not okay with that. Yeah. Um, it could have shut you I, down. Totally. Yes, absolutely. And I feel really grateful. Who knows God's grace protecting me or, or whatever it is that it just actually made me really mad. Um, but it, it really, I think, sparked something in me in the same way that kind of my mom and the culture that she created within our home kind of sparked that sense of curiosity and, and understanding that the world is a lot bigger than I think it might be as, you know, a 12 year old in my certain part of the city. I think that remark and that kind of like label that I got as a 12 year old sparked my sense of awareness of like, interesting, something's happening because I've never seen a boy out on the soccer field who's yelling at his teammates to, you know, do something who's captain of the soccer team, I've never heard someone call him a derogatory name. I've never seen anything but that boy be kind of held up as like, oh, he's a leader. He's the captain of the soccer team. He's this great, you know, he's showing this like great leadership potential. And so from a really early age, kind of being cued into this awareness of like something that my experience as a 12 year old girl was actually quite different 
than my male counterpart. Um, and I think that those two things, this belief that the world is bigger than I realize and that there are people that come from backgrounds that are quite different than mine and the recognition of my privilege combined with this kind of keyed in awareness of gender dynamics, I think probably set me up pretty well to where I normally start the story, which would be in university, in college, really starting to get increasingly interested and passionate about social justice issues um, surrounding kind of human rights and poverty. And then more specifically within that kind of the gender dynamic, why and how extreme poverty and conflict affects women differently than it affects men mm. and ended up spending a lot of time and energy in university kind of exploring those two topics. And that in many ways, like set the trajectory for where you went with everything else you've done since, which is huge. Um, can we talk for a minute about feminism? Like since you brought it up, because I <laughs> am like hands down, absolutely a feminist, but that's, it's a hard, like whenever you say that it does not always mean to people what it, what it really should mean, which is just that like, of course women should have like equal rights and they should be valued the same as other, you know, as the other gender. And, uh, and, far too often, you know, you can look at the statistics, that's not the case. In fact, in almost every case, that's not the case. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you brought this up. And the fact that you self-identify as a feminist further confirms my suspicions that if you still lived in Portland, we'd be great friends. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, and of course, as a self-proclaimed feminist, I get a lot of pushback and a lot of people who question me in that or who love to tell me all of the reasons why they couldn't or don't identify as a feminist. Um, and there's a lot of talk and conversation about what does that actually mean? What is the definition of a feminist? The reality is you're exactly right. The, the most kind of pared down basic level of a definition of feminism is a belief that both genders are equal that they deserve equal access and equal rights, that they have equal access to opportunities. Um, so that is that is the most basic kind of fundamental definition of it, that I have a very difficult time understanding how anybody could disagree with, but that's another story. And then, of course, our society and our culture and subcultures, there are tons of different layers and definitions and, and thoughts and feelings that emerge with that. I do find it really interesting that I think with a lot of kind of civil rights movements, if you will, and I use that in a way to say when a people group that is being discriminated against or oppressed in some way decides to put some language around their experience and try to create a, a sense of forward movement away from being in a position um, of being oppressed or being discriminated against, how we all of a sudden get very, very, very selective on our like vocabulary and semantics and like what we're willing to, to stand behind and say that we're a part of in a way that we don't when we're a part of majority culture or when we're saying we belong to a culture that feels like it's more accepted or perhaps that there's more power associated with it. So I, I find it really interesting that, um, so I'm a, I, I would refer to myself as a Jesus follower. I love Jesus and I follow Jesus and subscribe to kind of that worldview. Worldview. And, I know a lot of people that do as well. I know a lot of people that very quickly will say like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And that's a very like 
they can just say that. And it's like, I can say that I'm a Christian and just be like confident in saying that, even though there are 100 million definitions of what a Christian is, right? There are so many different subcultures and subsets and denominations and doctrine and all of this stuff. But we managed to like be okay with that nuance and say like, I can identify as a Christian knowing that, yeah, if someone wants to have a conversation with me and ask me really specific questions about my beliefs or what faith community I belong to or my background or what led me to these beliefs, there's lots of room for nuance and for conversation and for kind of gray areas. I don't have to be in a place where I'm saying, yes, I identify and I buy everything that every Christian ever since the beginning of humanity up until this day has said hook, line and sinker. And if I can say that, then I can then I can say I'm I'm a Christian. But with feminism, I often find that, that all of a sudden that bar gets raised really, really, really high. And it's like, I have to agree with everything, everything that I've ever heard a self-proclaimed feminist say before I can say like, yes, I believe that. And yes, I want to be a part of this movement. I had a really interesting conversation. This was just maybe two or three weeks ago. I was in a situation. It was kind of like a think tank with some Christian leaders from around the Northwest. And we were having a conversation and it was majority men. There was only one other female in the room and the other female, we were actually talking about the women's March and the other um, female in the room. I was kind of sharing about my experience of the women's March and what a beautiful day it was. And like everything that I learned and the experience that I had. And this woman looked at me and she was like, you know, I might be regretting that I didn't go. She was like, but I didn't go because I just was afraid that I would just get lumped in with all of those people that were there. And I kind of took that and I like sat with it. And my response was, well, I went because I was afraid I might get lumped in with everybody who wasn't there. And it was so fascinating to me that it's kind of th this idea that it's like I can opt out without having kind of that same standard of getting like lumped into a group of people um, that has has honestly been something that I've kind of been like thinking about and it's been swirling around in my brain for the last couple of weeks because I think we have to as a people allow and recognize that anytime more than I think two people and heck, maybe not even two people, you know, I'm married and I've been married for eight years to my best friend. And if I believed in soulmates, I would say he's my soulmate, someone who knows me and gets me more than anyone else. And yet when we come to the table, there are still things we disagree on, right? I can't say that everything that Ben Bohannon believes I hold as a core belief as well, because we're different and we're different humans and we have different experiences. But yet I can say we share much more in common than what divides us. And so I really believe that anytime more than two people come together, you lose the ability to say like, yep, I believe in that 100% all of it, hook, line, and sinker, sign me up. Um, and you really kind of lose out and you miss out on this human experience that I think involves conversation and question asking and understanding one another's experience and personal history and their vision of, of the way that they want the world to work. And so it really bums me out. I think when we have these like trigger words that make me go like, Oh, you said you're that therefore we're too different. I can't learn anything from you. I don't agree with you. I'm not a part of that movement, that political affiliation, that religion, whatever it is. Um, so that was maybe kind of a rabbit trail, but no, those are my thoughts. That's so good. No, I love it. And <laughs> And the more I think about it, the more I think that a movement or a 
a march is actually a really symbolic way to describe these like ideas and that like everybody you don't have to necessarily subscribe to what everybody else subscribes to to be a part of this march but you're all heading in the same direction and some people are walking on the sidewalk some people are pun- like pumping their fists some people are holding signs everybody gets to kind of operate in their own unique independent way but you're all moving the same direction and you know in the case of a social justice type movement you're all like moving towards justice you're moving towards voices being heard and there's there's freedom within that and you don't have to get like boxed into uh it's it's not like you're signing a contract it's not like you're saying i i've subscribed to every single thing on this bullet point list you're just saying i'm going to be with these people and we're going to go do something together absolutely and i think we we miss out on a beautiful opportunity when we don't see what we can be for that's similar and we're so hung up on the things that divide us. And that's what makes me really sad, specifically kind of even going back to kind of the, the gender equality feminism thing is it's like, you know, I might post something on social media and it's so fascinating to me that a lot of times people will use that as an opportunity to tell me about something that they disagree with. Even though I know that 95% of my beliefs, I think in the core of who they are and who I am are probably the same. But yet we don't oftentimes speak up and say like, yes, I'm also for that. Yes, I also believe in this. Yes, how, how can I support you in this work? And I, and I often find I'm much I'm much more hesitant to have conversations with people when it's like you're so quick to speak up the moment I say something that isn't exactly aligned with your thought process or your worldview. But where are you the other 99% of the time when the things that I'm fighting for and I believe in, I think that you do too. And I think when we can do that and if we could come to the table, there's so much more. And I have so many colleagues and people that I love that disagree with me about what this looks like, what these practices, what it looks like out in the world, what the best policy is, what this really means. But when we come together and we say, but like at the end of the day, we're, we're to your kind of point and to your analogy, we're marching forward together. Let's focus on what we all believe in. You know, what are the common grounds? What are the things that we can say like, this is not okay. You know, whether that is comes down to issues facing women and girls in, um, you know, the commercial sex industry or in human trafficking or the fact that 25 percent of women on our, our college campuses will experience sexual assault before they graduate. There, there are these really basic fundamental human right things that even I, the people that are so quick to speak up and tell me why they, they don't consider themselves a feminist. I really believe that they're not they're not pro rape, <laughs> that they're not, you know, that they're not on the rapist side of this equation, that they believe that a woman should have the opportunity to pursue higher education in a, in a place that is safe and dignified and gives her an equal opportunity to learn without the threat of sexual assault. And yet when you only use your voice to disagree with me, it's really hard not to feel like you're choosing the opposite side, which in this exact scenario would be, why are you why are you pointing out everything that feminists are doing wrong, but you're doing nothing on the other side of the fence to talk to college age men about why rape is wrong? You know, why are you so quick to point out why someone, why a woman is at fault? And yet, like, I haven't ever heard you using your platform or your voice or your, 
relationships to start a meaningful conversation with men about consent or sexual assault or responsibility. And so that's where I really do feel, I feel very passionate specifically when it comes to men of, I believe that men need to be a part of this conversation. And I, as someone who is in this movement, want to create space at the table for that and really want to invite men into that conversation because I feel like until we actually come to the table saying, hey, issues that are facing women and girls are not women's issues, they're actually human rights issues, that there's a level of progress that we won't be able to achieve. Bravo. That's so good. Oh my gosh. I just got goosebumps as you were saying all of that. And I'm like so with you on on all of that. I think that's so accurate. And I would imagine that, you know, of course you you experienced the world of feminism or or the need for feminism more so, you know, in the United States, in in middle school and high school and college. Uh, but tell me about when you experienced it internationally. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely in some ways really similar. And there are some pretty big differences um, depending on, you know, what culture you're in and what country you're in and what kind of the history of that is. But yes, I would say that my I did not grow up traveling very extensively. My fam- I didn't travel when I was a kid. My first time ever leaving the United States was I went on a couple week trip to Europe with my little sister when I graduated from college to backpack and that was in Western Europe. So pretty, you know, traveling for sure, but we were in Switzerland and Italy and um, learning about cultures, but it wasn't culture shock by any means. So I didn't really grow up having a very varied international or like travel based experience. And so when I and and then I moved to East Africa. (laughs) So you can imagine that that that's um, a contrast to my parents, you know, worry about me as a 22 year old who had never really traveled, moving to Uganda, showing up in a country where I didn't really know anybody, where I didn't have a job, where I wasn't linked up with an organization, wondering how that was going to play out for me. Um, So I showed up in Uganda and it was in a lot of ways like drinking from a fire hose. And I think it's all the same. You know, at at the end of the day, gender inequality stems from a deep belief that women are less than um, and that women are property. I think every piece of of gender inequality really comes back to that. It's just a matter of how blatant that belief is and how much it's, you know, subtext and how much it's in like my experience as a middle schooler, right, wasn't, it wasn't a blatant experience of I wasn't allowed to go to school or or I wasn't allowed to be in a, you know, to, to run that practice because I was a female. I was allowed to be there. Um, I, you know, legally I had a right to be there. Policy supported me being there in education. And it was more this kind of social subtext, the language that was being used, the way that I was either being rewarded or punished socially came down to came down to my gender. That's quite nuanced. Um, as opposed to being in Uganda where there are actually, you know, laws on the books that reinforce the idea that a woman is the property of her father or her husband. Financial transactions that are taking place that support the belief that a woman is a property of her father or her husband. Deeply embedded cultural beliefs that are so deeply embedded that people very readily will say that this is my belief. Whereas in the United States, for instance, domestic abuse is is a massive issue. In the U.S., globally, there are more women in a single year that will suffer ill health or injury due to 
domestic violence globally than all of the women who will be involved in traffic accidents or malaria combined. So a massive issue, not just in developing countries, but in the United States of America. The difference in the U.S. is my guess would be that the majority of men that are being surveyed in the U.S., even if they are physically abusing their spouse on a regular basis, if surveyed by someone, wouldn't probably admit to it or say like, yes, I have a moral justification for that. There's enough, I think, understanding in our culture that probably that's wrong, that we shouldn't be admitting to that, that if you were in a formal setting being interviewed, you may or may not actually admit to that. Whereas in Uganda, there was a big John Hopkins study that probably, it's probably been seven or eight years now that took place where they found about 80% of Ugandans, when surveyed, believe that there is a moral justification and reason for a man to physically abuse his female spouse for a variety of different reasons that would constitute her as not being a good wife, essentially. So these incredibly deeply held beliefs about a woman's role in society. Now, that being said, there's so much progress happening and that is changing. And the women that we're working with in Uganda are a part of that. They are changing culture. They are changing society. They are, I truly believe, proving a lot of people wrong. And and, and by doing that, they are creating a possibility for themselves, but also for the women that will come after them. And so I really do believe that that's changing. But when I showed up in Uganda for the first time, it was the first time that I had ever um, witnessed that level of blatant sexism, I would say, that the kind of seeds and the essence of that I had certainly experienced before, but all of a sudden being like, oh no, this is actually happening on on a very this is on the table for instance also a couple years ago in Uganda there was this literally almost passed it was called the miniskirt statute that passed and this we're talking about don't quote me but I think it was three years ago so this is not ancient history that basically said if a woman in Uganda is wearing a miniskirt and she is sexually assaulted or raped she cannot press charges against the man who raped her Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Right? So it's like, we see that in the US all of the time. When a woman is raped or experiences sexual assault, the level of kind of victim blaming, the level of, but what was she wearing? But what was she drinking? Where was she? All of a sudden shifting the blame from the rapist to the victim is is something that happens. But then to see that actually written into law, like we are, we want to go have legislation that supports this belief that what a woman is wearing can actually be the cause of rape as opposed to focus on the other side of that, which is the rapist himself, um, was pretty extraordinary. And recognizing on a global level um, the amount of room and growth that we have to go. And that is where I'm so thankful, I think, for that spirit that my mom really created in our home and instilled in us, which is I meet a lot of people in America who think that feminism or the fight for gender equality is kind of over. You know, like the thought of like, but I, you know, I have choice. I have a job. I go to work. I own a home. I drive a car. And that level of kind of flippancy of saying, well, I made it. Well, I feel like I have the choices that I have without acknowledging that literally billions of our sisters across the globe are not afforded those same choices and don't have that same level of autonomy um, and choice in their in their life is is really disheartening to me. And it's it's actually really wow. sad. Yeah, it's the it's the passivity of privilege. As soon as you're yes. in a place of privilege, you can you can breathe easy and, and just live your life because you made it, but that's not the reality for other people. 
absolutely. And it's heartbreaking to me that we wouldn't acknowledge the extreme gift and privilege. You know, if you went, if you were able to go to high school, if, are you kidding me? You went to university. If you have a bank account, if you got to choose who you married, if you got to decide when you wanted to have children, that you would take those things for granted. And instead of saying, oh my gosh, I need to use this privilege and this gift I have now a responsibility because I was, for whatever reason, afforded these opportunities to make sure that every other woman on the face of planet Earth has a hope and has a chance. And at least we're not getting her one step closer to that to instead say, well, I made it. I'm doing fine. Don't tell me I need to be, you know, I, I need equality because I'm quite loving where I'm at right now is um is, is quite heartbreaking to me. But I do acknowledge that it's heavy and that it's a big issue and that it's very easy for people to decide that they, they want to just to check out or to shut down or even take this kind of passive approach of like, well, I'm okay, so I can move on to the next thing and worry about the details of my life. And so part of what we are trying to do at Seiko is, is just create pathways that are actionable, real things that you can do, decisions that you can make, Things that you can purchase, movements that you can be a part of that are, are, are in a slow but steady and real but accessible way kind of helping us march forward together. Ooh, that's good. That's really cool. Along those lines, you know, your actionable thing that you did, which again is crazy, was, you know, because you had this privilege and because you had this passion and this awareness, you decided, oh, I'm going to show up and I'm going to live in Uganda. <laughs> Obviously, that's not what you're asking everybody to do, but you did that. You showed up. What was your purpose, you know, really quickly of going to Uganda in the first place? My original intent, which isn't this funny, our best laid plans, you know what they say about that. My original <laughs> intent, I studied journalism in university. So I was in a journalism program and I was becoming increasingly interested and passionate about issues that were facing women and girls that were living in extreme poverty and in conflict and post-conflict zones. So I had this journalism degree. I had this passion. I smushed them together in the best way that I could imagine that they went together. And my thought was, I'm going to be a reporter. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a journalist who travels all over the world and writes about these issues on the ground, writes about the challenges women and girls are facing, writes hopefully about amazing solutions that are in place. My hope you know, and intent there would be to, to garner um, awareness and support for solutions and things that were working and shed light on things that were not working or, or challenges that still remain. I really envisioned you know, as a 21-year-old who had never really had a job in journalism before and had never really traveled the world before, my dream was like I wanted to be my generation's Nick Kristoff. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Nick Kristoff. Mm, yeah, I know. Absolutely. He's a writer for the New York Times and he covers a lot of just human rights, social justice issues on a global level. And, and that was really my intent was like, okay, I need to go just be on the ground, learn as much as possible. And I really wanted to put myself in, in a posture and a position where I wasn't going to volunteer. I wasn't building a home. I wasn't, you know, starting a nonprofit organization. It was really, I want to go. I want to learn. I want to make relationships with people who are actually in the midst of, of kind of this, this life experience. I want to be, I want to have the freedom to ask really hard questions um, and hear potentially hard answers to really kind of get to a, a level of truth that then my intention was I would eventually write about and share with other people. 
I, if, if you haven't probably gathered yet, if you're, if you're listening <laughs> to this, um, I do not work for a newspaper. I am not a reporter. I actually run an ethical fashion brand. Um, I make sandals and handbags and woven goods. Uh, and so my, my path obviously led me in a very different direction, but that was my original intent. That's amazing. I did not know that. I didn't know that at all. Um, that's really cool. Help me bridge that gap then between showing up, asking questions, going into, you know, reporter journalist mode, uh, and then, you know, the the first time that you made a sandal. Yeah, absolutely. So there there is definitely not a not a clear connection there. Um, there never is. There never is. Yeah. So I showed up and I started doing that. I started asking questions. I started hosting, you know, even just like informal focus groups with people that I was meeting and asking a ton of questions and really just trying to, on a relational level, create connection and trust and relationships with women in Uganda, because I really, really wanted to learn about their experience. And through that, I got connected to several different nonprofit organizations that I kind of would do some volunteer work with on the communication side. So here I am in Uganda, I don't have a job, I'm not there with an organization, I've got this grand, you know, dream of eventually being a journalist. But like, let's be honest, I wasn't, um, you know, no one was employing me to do that. And so I would, in my spare time, in between kind of my question asking and my friend making, if you will, would spend some time volunteering at some different nonprofit organizations, maybe writing a newsletter, doing some photography for them, doing some donor relations, whatnot. And kind of through that ended up landing at a very, very, very cool nonprofit based in Uganda called Cornerstone. And I was immediately drawn to this organization because at this point in my story, I had spent a fair amount of time and kind of learning about different initiatives and projects that were happening in Uganda. And to be completely honest, um, went definitely kind of through a cycle of disillusionment about what's going on, about how things are working, if they're actually working, what the sustainability is, what the unintended side effects of a lot of these initiatives that have, I think, really, really good intentions, but put into place can cause some, some pretty unintended consequences. And so I feel like I got pretty familiar with that. And I think went through what a lot of people probably go through. And, and a lot of people probably don't feel comfortable talking about is this kind of this, this kind of period where everything that you kind of thought and you believed about the world gets a little bit dashed. <laughs> and you're kind of looking at the pieces going like, but I thought that this was really good. I thought I wanted to be a part of this. And now I'm seeing things and asking questions and I, and I don't know if I can be as, as for this as I thought I could be. Um, so that being said, that was kind of the place that I was in, just hyper learning mode, asking a lot of critical questions when I stumbled across this nonprofit organization. And I truly just felt like I stepped onto this campus and just went, <gasps> it was just like this breath of fresh air of like this model in this way and the language and everything that we're saying and that's being not only kind of spoken but actually lived out in practice like oh I, I think I'm into this I think what these people are doing is pretty special um, and kind of the high level view of what they're doing is um, they do a lot of different work in Uganda but kind of their main focus is they have these leadership academies and their whole vision for these leadership academies is that they're going around the country, they're finding the best and the brightest academically gifted leadership oriented students who come from backgrounds of extreme poverty. They bring them to this two year essentially college prep program where they have an incredible academic experience. It's very rigorous. They're always rated in the top 10 schools in the entire country. So 
a really rigorous academic program. And then they also focus a lot on leadership training and skills building. And then they also have this amazing focus on reconciliation and unity um, amongst their students. So Uganda is a pretty, like, you know, a lot of African countries, and this is definitely the remnants of uh, what happens when you colonize a place and you say, hey, all of a sudden you, you know, 50 tribes were drawing a red line on a map and saying, now you're a country. Um, you can imagine that that creates, you're not super well set up for, for unity and for walking towards progress together. Um, so there's can be quite a bit of um, division amongst different ethnicities and tribes and, and all of these different things. And so one of Cornerstone's objectives is to really create a sense of, of unity and reconciliation. And so they will pick women that come from a background um, that might have experienced conflict with uh, a different tribe and they'll say, okay, let's pick these two women that come from, from backgrounds of conflict and let's uh, put them in a small group together <laughs> and let's have them go to classes together and study together and do their chores together with the deep belief, kind of hearkening back to the earlier part of our conversation with the deep belief that there's much more that these 18 year old women share in common and what divides them. And if we can align them on those things and we can kind of help them understand what they share in common, all of a sudden here's, and then these students go on to become, you know, doctors and lawyers and they're creating policy and they're involved in, in politics on the national level. They're, here's this incredible pathway towards long-term sustainable peace and unification and progress as a country. They are the future. And that like, that, kind of future centric um, student educational, like white Americans are not gonna come in and, and like have the silver bullet and solve all of these problems, but instead finding and equipping the best and the brightest youth in this country to go on and do that felt very compelling to me. And like, yes, this is kind of a model that I feel like I can really get behind. And so, that being said, I ended up kind of just hanging out at the school and a part of this organization. And one of the conversations that this organization was having was about these specific women and, and specifically about this pretty big challenge that they were facing as an, as an organization. And that was that um, in Uganda, there's a nine month gap between high school and university. So there's this gap that's intended to uh, allow students who test into university to find time to find a job to, to make money to pay for school. Um, and what was happening with these young women is, is remember they're being they're coming from all over the country and so after they graduate from high school they're going back to their villages uh, with all of this gusto and vision and excitement about you know the future and what they want to study in university and kind of the change that they want to create in their communities and basically when they go back to their villages two things are happening the first and most obvious issue is that these young women are they can't find jobs a lot of them are from areas of the country where there's a super high unemployment rate and the economy can't really support anyone in it let alone 18 year old women who are competing by the way with boys in the village for the same economic opportunities the second thing that's happening is there is this loss of social support so they spent the last two years with other women who are really bright, really gifted, have all of this leadership potential, talking and dreaming and working towards the future. And then some of them are going back to their villages where, to be honest, they're kind of freaks. They might be the first women in their entire village who have made it this far in high school, let alone have aspirations to go to university and to become a lawyer or a doctor or a politician or, or whatever their, their dreams are. And so there's a ton of social pressure on them when they go back to their villages to 
get married, to start having kids, dowry and bride price and all of these crazy things that they're facing. And so these two issues of um, lack of economic opportunity and lack of kind of this community um, were the things that that were really kind of being talked about and trying. Um, there's a lot of just conversation about it at, at the organizational level. And so this was just where I happened to show up in the story. And um, and I met these young women and they became friends. And as you know, things happen when you, you just form relationships with people and all of a sudden that kind of far away, as, as we were talking about before that their problem, that issue became my issue, right? Because it's like, no, these are like my friends. And if my friends and like my people don't have access to this opportunity. Like that's actually not their problem. Now that's my problem too, because, because we're kind of together in this. And so long story short, went down many different paths, tried to start a charity, realized very quickly that that was not the model that was appropriate, really kind of started critically questioning the kind of aid sponsorship model in general from an economic level, from a development level, from a relational level, and decided that in this specific context, it didn't make sense and I couldn't get fully behind that, that if I was going to create maximum amount of change, both on you know an opportunity level for these young women and, and gender equality in the country, but also on an economic level and on a development level that we needed to pursue a market-based solution. So went down that path, tried to start a couple different businesses that failed very quickly. I had no background or to be completely honest, any interest in business at all, let alone, um, you know, the ability or skill set or experience I needed to do that successfully. Tried a couple different things, one of which was a chicken farm um, that failed pretty quickly. And then, you know, <laughs> the next logical thing after your failed chicken farm is some like cute strappy sandals, right? So, Amazing. Um, so made a pair of sandals kind of cobbled together a supply chain, a business model, went to the school and basically said, okay, who are three women who, given their family backgrounds, the area of the country that they come from, probably would really struggle during this nine-month gap, but that are really bright and fiery and know what they want to do. And you really think that if, if they make it onto university, they'll, they'll be successful. And so the school got together and the school picked three young women, Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca. And I, I sat down with Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca and kind of said, okay, here's the deal, ladies. I taught them how to make these sandals. And I said, if you promise to make these sandals for the next nine months, I promise that you'll go to university in the fall. Mm. And they were like, okay. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and came back to the U.S. and started kind of down home as you can imagine, I was selling the sandals. I kept a trunk of them in the back of my car and I would work out of coffee shops. And anytime someone would start chatting with me, I, I got remarkably good at leading all conversations to sandals Wow! <laughs> and uh, would, you know, say, oh, and they would get interested in it. I would tell them the story and I would show them my sandals. And then before you know it, we're out in the parking lot and I'm getting sandals out of the back of my trunk and they're trying them on. Really, it was an incredible lesson in season in being really bold in conversation and, and inviting people into the story. A lot of what I was doing was hosting trunk shows. So I had amazing, beautiful friends who were super excited about the work that we were doing and the product that we were selling. And they would host these trunk shows where they would say, yeah, come over. I'll buy a bottle of wine and I'll invent 10 of my friends over and you can share the sacred story and we'll have a little shopping night. And that was really how we started to kind of gain 
momentum and steam. It's really fun actually in this current season that we're in right now in 2017, because for the last five or six years, we've actually been building more of kind of an e-com wholesale brand. So selling um, to stores and, and selling online. And where we're at right now is we're really shifting a lot of our model actually to go back to that kind of in-person direct to consumer model. One of our biggest hopes with what we're doing with Seiko is really connecting the end consumer to the producer with radical transparency, radical authenticity in a really relational based way, because I truly believe that that is what will start to transform how we act in the world, the products that we purchase, the causes that we care about. If we can kind of wrap our minds around like, hey, that woman in Uganda that's a billion miles away and looks different than me and speaks a different language, we actually share a lot more in common than I thought and really make that connection. I really believe that that will be transformational. And that's really difficult to do when you're selling to stores, to be frank. Um, you know, when your product is sitting on a shelf with a thousand other products and someone might buy the product. And, you know, to be honest, we hope that they're buying the product because they love the product. We, we want to be product led and we want the reason that people purchase our products to be because it's on trend. It's a great price point. It's super well made. It's really innovative. It's creative. It's a wonderful color, whatever the reason is. Um, but then for the reason that they really get invested with our brand is, is because of this story. And doing that through the wholesale model was actually quite challenging. And so we've kind of blown everything up, to be honest. And we're, we've launched an entirely new business model here on the U.S. side of things where we're saying like, hey, if we're all about creating economic and educational opportunity and community for women in East Africa on the production manufacturing side, why not do the same thing on our business model in the US side? Could we use our sales and marketing and kind of distribution part of our business to create opportunity and community for women right here in the US through this direct to consumer trunk show model, using their social media platforms, their blogs, their Instagram followings, their relationships to kind of be the agent of Seiko, um, the face and the voice of the brand in their communities. And so we've recently, um, just within the past year, launched a program called the Seiko Fellows Program. And it is like, if you imagine a social enterprise boot camp, where it's like, we get tons of women who are like, I want to know, I'm, you know, I'm passionate about issues of, you know, women and girls or education, or, you know, I have some connection to East Africa. And I, I want to know how to use my kind of time and talent and skills to actually make a difference kind of through this world of social enterprise. We're like, great, come be a social entrepreneur with Seiko Designs. Come start and build and scale your own social enterprise and make a real difference in the lives of women in East Africa while creating opportunity for yourself, both on the educational and the financial level here in the U.S. and join this amazing community of just badass, brave, bold, bright, passionate, risk-taking women here in the U.S. So you're not going to go at it alone and kind of be a social entrepreneur on an island, which I've definitely experienced and can, it can drive a person crazy, but instead do it in the context of this amazing, collaborative, supportive community where we all are on the same team and believe the same things and um, are helping each other be successful. And so that's kind of what we're in the midst of right now. Wow. That is so exciting. And I think it's worth mentioning because this is a podcast and people can't see uh, the sandals you guys make, but there, you know, there's a lot of places to buy sandals. And of course, 
the connection with these women who are being empowered through these sandals is like a really cool selling point. But they're also just really cool sandals. Like they, you can, I don't think I can even explain it. So I'll just tell people like they're gonna Google it later. Uh, but it's so cool. Like, and I'm not even good at talking. Like I'm just like. I'm doing such a bad job explaining it right now. I love it. They're you can awesome. tell you really mean what you're saying, and I really appreciate <laughs> that. We are. It is such a high compliment to me when people compliment our product specifically because, you know, there's a lot of people kind of in the ethical fashion space, in the fair trade space, um, and I think oftentimes this idea that like, well, we have a really cool mission means like, so we can kind of sell subpar stuff or like people buy the product because they're excited about the story. And I am adamantly against that mentality. Actually quite the opposite. My perspective is like, we have a beautiful story. Therefore the bar for us to have even more beautiful product is actually even higher because I believe that our story and our impact and our mission actually demands quality and excellence and innovative products and that are beautifully made with beautiful materials. Um, so I really, really appreciate that. I, I really believe that if we're going to make a dent in the space, I never want someone buying a product because they're like, oh, I should buy this, you know, for those women in Uganda. But instead saying like, are you kidding me? These sandals are beautiful. This leather bag is amazing. This duffel, you know, leather weekender duffel bag is incredible. And then on top of that, knowing that my dollars are actually going to make an impact that I can really stand behind. Um, and that's something that we believe very deeply in. So, mm. so thank you so much for your, your stamp of approval yes. on the product side. <laughs> um, yeah, I've never worn them. So, uh, so the stamp of approval may not mean a whole lot to a whole lot of people, but <laughs> I will say they look so cool. Um, I appreciate that. One of the central themes of this entire story is uh, in a lot of ways, your craziness and your audacity to go after uh, these things that you care about in what some people would call insane ways. And I think that's why we connect so well. Like, I think that's what I love about you. If other people want to, you know, follow down their own passions and make a difference in the world in crazy, crazy ways, but they don't know where to start. You know, nobody's going to start with a, a trip to Uganda or like selling everything in, in driving around the country, what's like a practical first step that people can take? Yeah, here's the thing. Every even crazy decision, you know, I have these kind of like watershed moments where I buy the one-way ticket to Uganda or we decide to, you know, my husband decides to quit his full-time job and we lose our benefits and our retirement and everything and health insurance to go out on the road. Even those big decisions in hindsight, when you look at them, actually were the next logical decision from the, the decision before it, which was a little bit smaller and a little bit less dramatic, which was preceded by another decision that was a little bit smaller than that and a little bit less dramatic. And so, you know, we have a saying at Seiko that every great journey begins with a small step. And I absolutely believe that. Um, I believe in taking one small action every day that's going to put you in a position that's going to take taking a risk, pushing you over a certain threshold. And sometimes those thresholds are emotional thresholds, are psychological thresholds of reaching out to somebody and taking a risk on a relational level or making a statement and saying like, hey, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm declaring my intention that by the end of this month, by the end of this week, by the end of this year, within the next two years, I want to have accomplished this, or at least I want to try. I believe very fully 
in this idea of the point of no return. And the point of no return isn't always a plane ticket. And it's not always taking out a $50,000 loan or putting a second mortgage on your house. Oftentimes, the point of no return, I think, can be just being bold enough to declare your intentions to people around you. Because I think the moment that we say something out loud, and we don't say like, well, I'm kind of thinking about this, or this is, you know, whatever. But we actually say, this is what I'm going to do. All of a sudden, there's kind of a level of accountability that comes with that, right? Where it's like, I've said I'm going to do this thing, because I oftentimes, how many times have you gotten an idea in the middle of the night, or while you're taking a shower? And and, and I, I it happens all the time when I'm like, kind of halfway in between dream and sleep, and I get this idea. And when I'm in that state, I'm like, this is amazing. This is brilliant. I'm definitely going to do this. And then as I kind of start to wake up, and I start to have my coffee, I'm like, I my, my lizard brain, if you will, I don't know if you're a Seth Godin fan, but... My lizard brain kicks in and says like, nope, that's dumb. Nope, that's not going to work. Nope, you're not going to be able to figure that out. Nope, it's going to be too expensive. No, you don't have the resources. No, you don't have the background. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, 30 minutes later, an hour later, three days later, I'm like, yeah, that was kind of dumb. And I never told anybody about it. So it's kind of like no harm, no foul. We'll, we'll just kind of let that one float down the river. What I love about the point of no return and by declaring your intentions, even if that's to your best friend or your husband, I'm not saying you have to, you know, announce it publicly and call the New York Times or be in front of an arena <laughs> of people. But I, I believe in the power of words and I believe in the power of articulating your intentions and saying, like, I will do this. And at the very least, you're going to have someone that when you don't follow through, when you don't take the next step, you're going to have some level of accountability of, of saying like, well, why didn't that work out? Why aren't you doing that anymore? And that to me is even far greater than like, oh, I like have this idea. And then I talked myself out of it. And I never said it out loud. And I didn't really do anything about it. So it's, it's fine. I'll kind of put it in this like pile of, of dreams or things that I thought I could do that maybe I couldn't. And so I think the most powerful thing, if you are listening to this podcast, and you're thinking, I've got this inkling, I have this idea or I've got this dream or even if it's just like there's some there's I have this kind of fire in my belly and I don't even know what it's going to look like or what form it's going to take. But I this year, this week, this month, in this season of life, I want to make a step towards making whatever that thing is a reality of actually stating it out loud and telling someone. And then this is the really scary thing, giving that someone the permission and the authority to hold you accountable to that. Beautiful. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's like the best advice. That's so helpful. And, and, and you've, you've followed that advice and you've created something amazing that inspires me and inspires people and and more than anything empowers people and is going to change the future. And so for that, I thank you. I appreciate that, Brandon. Thank you so much for you and for the work that you're doing to, to create a platform to encourage people and inspire people and and connect people because I, I truly believe that that's where that's where the good stuff happens when we when we come together and we acknowledge that um, that we all have a little bit to give and we all have a lot to learn and I I truly believe that that spirit um, is what will transform really big things. Did I tell you or did I tell you Liz's thought process and her story and her craziness and her creativity, her heart, all of these things are so encouraging and inspiring and, and absolutely leave me smiling. 
I love that idea that Liz said right here at the very end where she said, you just have to take a risk. You've got to declare your intentions. Um, and sometimes that's all that it takes to cross that point of no return. And from there on, you've got that perpetual motion of getting to continue this dream, this idea, this passion, whatever it is on a small scale, on a big scale, and allow that to get moving. But you just have to start. And and for Liz, she did that in a wild and crazy way. And, and for some people, that's going to be a perfect fit. But for others, you know, start small. Tell a friend your idea. You know, write it down. Whatever it is, just think how can I get started? How can I put one foot in front of the other and move forward with this? If you want to follow along with what Seiko Designs is doing, if you want to follow along with the amazing impact that Liz and her team are making, you should absolutely check out Seiko online. Um, It is a little bit tricky to spell, so I will give it to you. S-S-E-K-O is how you spell Seiko. S-S-E-K-O. You can Google it. I'm sure that they're the only ones out there. And of course, they're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So go check them out there as well. And don't forget, there's just over 48 hours left for you to back the good newspaper on Kickstarter. I really want you to be a part of it. If you have the means, please join us. You can support the Kickstarter. You can get your own copy at goodnewspaper.co. It's on all of my bios. Just go to my Instagram, my Twitter. Uh, You'll be able to find the link. And oh my gosh, I'm so excited to put this in your hands. You're going to love it. On that note, that's a wrap for this week's episode. I am so glad we got to have this conversation with Liz. Go out and do some good this week. And we'll be back next week with another inspiring conversation with an incredible person. Sound good?